0: This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I am Jolan Sami, your co-host joined by Natasha Sardog, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit.
1: America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit. Visit iLeadersSummit.org.
0: This weekend on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan and the Midwest, we're delighted to once again welcome to this program a special guest and a trusted ally, the Honorable Morris McTeague. The Honorable Morris McTeague is a former cabinet member of New Zealand's reform government, an advisor to U.S. legislators and state governors and the White House. The Honorable Maurice McTeague is vice president for outreach at the Mercator Center at George Mason University in the greater Washington, D.C. metro area. Mr. McTeague serves on the executive advisory board of the International Leaders' Summit and delivered keynote addresses at the Jerusalem Leaders' Summit in. In Israel, the International Leaders' Summits events in Brussels, Eastern Europe, and Washington, D.C. Mr. McTeague has testified on Capitol Hill and published many articles in a number of major media outlets, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, Bloomberg, Business Week, U.S. News and World Report, and the Chicago Tribune. In Washington, D.C., Mr. McTeague advised the White House Office of Management and Budget and most federal agencies on issues of accountability and transparency, and has consulted with legislators and governors in more than 30 states. A former cabinet minister and a member of parliament in his native New Zealand, Mr. McTeague was one of the architects of the New Zealand miracle, which dramatically reformed the country's government and economy by implementing market-driven pro-growth policies. He later became New Zealand's ambassador to Canada and received the prestigious Queen's Service Order in recognition of his public service from Queen Elizabeth II. Indeed, we are delighted to have Mr. McTeague joining us on America's Roundtable. Welcome, Mr. McTeague.
1: Welcome, Mr. McTeague.
2: Thank you very much, Joel and Natasha. Pleasure to be back with you.
1: In your excellent piece, a Rolling Back Government, Lessons from New Zealand, that you wrote in 2004, you shared about the growth of government, which has been a modern phenomena, and you brought up the relevant data. You said, in the beginning of the 1850s and lasting until the 1920s or 30s, the government's share of GDP in most of the world's industrialized economies was about 6%. From that period onwards, and particularly since the 1950s, we've seen a massive explosion in government's share of GDP, in some places as much as 35 to 45%. In the case of Sweden, it reached 65%. And in your piece, you also asked and answered your own question, and I quote, Can this situation be halted or even rolled back? My view, based upon personal experience, is that the answer is yes. Yes. Unquote. Now, according to data from the Treasury Department, total government spending in fiscal 2020 in the US reached $6.1 trillion by August 31. And with gross domestic product at $21 trillion and the national debt of over $28 trillion, the national debt peaked at over 133% of GDP this month. Government spending continues to grow, with lawmakers having no accountability to the taxpayers. The federal government was established for limited purposes in order to preserve our freedoms. And Mr. McTeague, what are your thoughts today? How do we stop the federal government from reckless spending and destroying our freedoms?
2: First and foremost, I think that we've got to pay attention. It's easy for the majority of us to just allow life to roll on and not think about these things very much. But we do need to think about them. I was listening to two remarkable economists yesterday, uh, Bruce Yandel and Matt Mitchell, and they were talking about, does debt matter? And Matt said something that was very interesting to me. And he said, back in the 13th century, the Florentines created double entry bookkeeping. And the purpose of double entry bookkeeping was to make sure that you recorded when you spent money, where it went to, and where it came from. So the, the deduction was made in the bank account, and that was because people found that they spent a lot of money and then they didn't have any left. What happens with government a lot is that the spending goes on. Nobody looks at where it comes from. And with the kind of debts that are being accumulated by governments, where they're going to come from is future generations. And there's no measure of that going on. How much of our children and grandchildren's future have we prejudiced? by this level of spending the other place it can come from and is much less visible is if the government just keeps printing money and as they keep printing money it takes more of our dollars to buy something so when i was young you could buy a car for two thousand dollars now you've got to uh, think about thirty to forty thousand dollars it's still a car does a little bit more but it's still a car. If I'm in the economy and working, then I don't notice that so much because my income adjusts with it. But if I'm on fixed incomes, like somebody who's retired or somebody who's disabled and lives on welfare or something like that, then gradually that reckless printing of money is stealing my wealth. And that's where it also comes from. I'm concerned because most people Most commentators, lots of economists, don't seem to be concerned about debt any longer.
1: Mr. McTeague, how do we get rid of the omnibus legislation, which packages in one bill diverse subjects, different measures, and affects various public policy issues, which are decided in a single vote by a legislature, instead of voting for every issue separately? As in the last example of the COVID relief bill, the Wall Street Journal stated, I quote, This generous definition of COVID-related provisions tallies some $825 billion. The rest of the bill, more than $1 trillion, is a combination of bailouts for democratic constituencies, expansions of progressive programs, pork, and unrelated policy changes. Unquote.
2: I think we need to have a better system of actually identifying what we expect to get for the money spent. Not what you're going to spend it on, but what we expect to get. And then we can look at whether or not that was money well spent. So that kind of accountability that measures results and then ask the question, was this good spending, I think is very important. The second part of that is that legislatures are the people's house. We, the people who have given permission to the legislature to govern us are entitled to know what you decided to do and what each member decided in doing that. And that means that legislation should be broken out by subject area. The rules of the legislature actually say that. But what the members do is that they set aside the rules um, so that they can disguise things that probably aren't very popular by mixing them up with a whole lot of things that are popular. So when the pandemic struck and lots of people found that all of a sudden they had no income, the payment of of monies to people seemed to be a really good thing to do. Uh, And that's popular. Uh, So that's the thing that everybody is talking about. But at the same time, a whole lot of other stuff is snuck in that is really vote buying stuff for special interests. And that's the bit that we need to expose by saying, hey, you need to go back to the rules as they're laid down and you need to abide by those rules when i was in government in new zealand we had the same experience and i give a lot of credit to a person called jeffrey palmer who was our prime minister for a short period of time but our deputy prime minister for a longer period of time and he reformed parliament and he made it much more difficult for governments uh, to be able to change the rules to suit themselves and what he did was that he said that they called in New Zealand standing orders, here they're called regular order, they could only be changed by unanimous consent. And that meant it only took one member to say no. So Parliament got into the habit of actually following the rules that have been laid down for a long period of time. And nothing bad actually happened, but the people were much better informed about what was being passed and who voted in which direction for each of those things that were being passed. That would help if those changes were made. That doesn't even actually require legislation, because those are the things that the legislature does to govern itself. And if that happened, then I think that immediately we would see a change in behavior, because everybody now has to say, oh, my constituents can see that I voted for this, or I voted against it. I can't say that, no, I was voting for support for the troops overseas and these other things just got included by um, sort of accident. No, that's not the way it should be. It should be, uh, I saw what you voted for and some of the stuff I don't like. So those two things, measure results. We used to have an adage that I think was really good, and that was, don't spend money on things that don't work. That means you actually have to find out what works. And when you find out that it doesn't work, either stop doing it or find a way of making it work. Those things, very simple, a little bit more complicated to do, they would make a big difference to how government actually performs and the size of government.
1: Right. And how can we make our lawmakers behave by the rules, basically, to uphold their own rules that they've had?
2: I really think that putting public pressure on members of legislatures At the moment, I would say that we have a very large majority of low-courage people operating in legislatures. They actually haven't got the guts to stand up and be counted on issues that are really important. And at the moment, I think that that's more important than it has been for a long time because there's a lot of people in power who have got to like the autocracy that they've been able to adopt over the last 12 months. And we will see attempts to be able to spread that autocracy out into a whole lot of other areas. That is really, really bad
0: stuff. Indeed. In fact, in this past week's Wall Street Journal, it was reported that the Republicans actually gave the green light for earmarks to be brought back into the process now. So therefore, in 2010, if I'm not mistaken, the earmarks were banned, whereby certain items would be designated for projects that could favor a specific constituency. Now, with Republicans and Democrats both welcoming earmarks. Remarks, it appears that we're in for a ride right for greater spending in government. So, both parties, actually, Republicans and Democrats, have unfortunately gone down the path of spending uh, without greater accountability.
2: I think the response to that is just to go back to the time when earmarks were banned. And what drove that argument was a project that was called the Bridge to Nowhere, and it was in Alaska. And it was a special earmark that was identified by Senator Stevens. And when people found out that there was only, a, I think, 40 people lived on this island and this bridge that was going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars, they rebelled. At that time, both Democrats and Republicans very reluctantly agreed to ban earmarks. That was not something they did happily because they liked the idea that they could manipulate your and my money to buy favour coming up towards elections. They're right back in that favour box again, and it will turn out to be bad because we're going to see all sorts of special interests who will be the recipients of that money. And I think when we looked at the last election and the things that went on around the last election, we have too many special interests, and we would be better if we had ordinary people who were making those decisions. But just go back to that example of the bridge to nowhere. It was broad public rejection of the idea of the bridge to nowhere that stopped earmarks. And in the end, politicians were driven to ban earmarks because the public thought they were so bad. That kind of thing needs to happen again if they're going to re-establish earmarks. Because my income is not a piggy bank bank for politicians to be able to dip into whenever they want to, to be able to secure public favor. And in fact, in many instances, I don't think they'd secure public favor, but they might secure the favor of some special interest. Uh, And that's an even smaller group. And we should stop that from happening. The only way we can do that is to say, whoa, hey, I'm the governed. And I don't like the people who are governing me or how they're governing me.
1: Mr. McTeague, President Trump signed the executive order in 2017 requiring any executive department or agency who plans to publicly announce a new regulation to propose at least two regulations which will in turn be repealed. The cost of the implementation of these new regulations must be less than or equal to zero dollars. And Mr. McTeague, the regulatory power controlled by non-elected officials, constraints to people's liberties with little or no accountability. You shared how these regulations are extremely difficult to eliminate once they are in place. How did you get rid of the regulation in your native New Zealand?
2: I agree with you the statement that the regulatory powers have grown enormously over time. You can put that down at the door of low courage politicians. Who didn't want to have to make those decisions because they might be unpopular to say, hey, we're going to stop spending money on that because it doesn't work. And they moved it on to people who could not be held accountable in the same way. In other words, their job wasn't subject to a ballot box. I think we need to push that back and say that the powers that were given to the legislature should not be able to be handed out to non-elected persons. So take that back. The way in which we addressed that in New Zealand was to just say that every regulation that was promulgated by departments had to finally be approved by Parliament. Uh, So it meant that it brought that back to Parliament. We uh, established a special committee of Parliament whose job it was to oversee regulations and regulation making. And by doing that, We were able to dramatically reduce regulations uh, because now the regulators, normally government departments, were accountable to the legislature and could be brought up and asked to produce evidence of the value of the regulation they were proposing. Not only did we do that, we said that every regulation had a life of five years. And at the end of five years, it either had to be reaffirmed by Parliament Uh, So it had required a positive action of Parliament. It couldn't be done by a negative. If you don't repeal it, it stays in place, which is one of the ways in which we got in trouble in the first place. No, it required a positive affirmation by Parliament to say this regulation will continue. That, I think, is a good thing, because one of the things that we found that drove those decisions was that agencies were using authorities that had been given maybe 100 years ago For a very different purpose and they would find ways of being able to use that to create the regulation that they wanted. We had an emergency powers act that actually came from the depression and it was designed to stop people, mainly farmers, from stockpiling food when people were starving. And then we found all sorts of other agencies would use the Department of Agriculture to pass their regulation for them because they could do virtually anything they liked. So we wiped those powers out, took them away altogether so that it couldn't be done again. That's where I think that it's important to be careful that history doesn't allow you to be manipulated by people who go back a long way. For example, we see a lot of regulations and things in the United States that are approved by um, laws that were passed in the um, 1800s. That's not good. It should be brought up to date and reviewed and said, oh, this law is worth retaining. These laws we shouldn't retain.
0: Mr. McTeague, we appreciate your principal leadership on the vital issues of our day and your leading role as a respected reformer of our time. During one of our recent conversations focused on the key challenges facing the West, you brought up serious concerns of the rise of cancel culture in the West. We also discussed the suppression of free speech and what seems clear to all today, the death of truth in the West. Indeed, as we delve into this vitally important issue, I'm inclined to suggest this brief refresher In a published report on freedom of speech, I quote, "...the concept of freedom of speech, the right to express opinions without government restraint, is a democratic ideal that dates back to ancient Greece." The ancient Greeks pioneered free speech as a democratic principle, Since that period, the Magna Carta Libertatum, the great charter of freedoms, now commonly called Magna Carta, a royal charter of rights agreed to by King John of England at Runnymede near Windsor on June 15, 1215, put into place the early beginnings of a process of assuring free speech, freedom of expression, and paving the way for a free press. Since then, the British Bill of Rights, written in 1689, granted freedom of speech in Parliament. This was the first instance in history that any form of freedom of speech was codified into law. In the United States of America, freedom of speech dates back to the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, and the First Amendment reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or breaching the freedom of speech or the press. And from this point forward, freedom of speech was firmly established in the United States. What we have seen today is that big tech, Large online platforms, social media groups are becoming the arbiters of truth and marginalizing independent voices. Mr. McTeague, what are your general observations and specific concerns about this most fundamental issue? The role of governments and courts in protecting this fundamental right, the freedom of speech.
2: Well, that's a huge subject. But if we start from the simplest point, truth is really identifying issues of fact so orange is orange and blue is blue I might like orange to be blue but because I would like that to be so I can't make it so it's very clear it is what it is and we have to accept that and it is the same with truth so research has identified that this is what the truth is this is what is known to be fact now I don't like the idea that we have all sorts of laws that will try and govern that. I think we do it better if we do it by social conscience. The mores of society really still support the idea that truth is important. We still teach our children that you can't tell lies. And we often have sanctions against our children if they do tell lies. But we don't have any kind of sanctions about those who we expect to tell us the truth when they don't. So, for example, I grew up in the 40s and the 50s, and we got nearly all of our news via the radio uh, and the newspaper. And the news was actually a factual recounting of what happened. And if the commentator got it wrong, it was a major issue. And there would be a lot of controversy about how it got to be wrong. And I can recall that happening with people like Walter Cronkite and then with the BBC when it was in its heyday uh, because a mistake was made. And they would go to vast lengths to repair that mistake. Uh, the idea that somebody would deliberately on the news tell a lie was just unthinkable. So over time, we've had sort of an acceptance of that's just spin. Well, You can give me your opinion, and that's okay. It's your opinion. It has the value of being your opinion. But as soon as you are trying to convince me that this is what happened and that's untrue, then I think that that is unacceptable. One of the ways would be if we were to expose the presenters who actually told untruths. And then if we take that a step further, we would expose the people who should be telling us the truth and weren't. For example, I think the whole lot of the information given to the public during the pandemic of the last year has clearly been false. A lot of government officials in official capacity were giving us a message one day and giving us exactly the opposite message the day after. That's bad stuff. And there should be some consistent approach to say, this is what science tells us. uh, And this is what the message has to be. If I would like the science to be different, I can go research it and find out a reason why it's wrong. Or I am dismissed because uh, there is no substance uh, to the claim that I make. So I think that those things uh, are important. But it becomes even more important when we actually think about bigger issues Truth is absolutely crucial to the justice system. And we go to extraordinary lengths to try and protect the innocent from being accused of something that they weren't responsible for. And yet, it still happens. If the mores of society change so that we are more accepting of the truth being what we want it to be, rather than what it actually is, a whole lot of those risks now come to be real. And that is bad. I really think that it's a matter of people reaffirming their belief that truth is important. Some of the stuff that we were talking about before, and how the government actually spends our monies, and what we get for it, because we often are not told the full truth. Now, the oath in the court is tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that's get at some of the things that happen. Well, I can tell you something, but if I don't tell you the rest of the story, you're going to believe something that's wrong. When uh, I went to school, that was actually called telling a lie. It was a lie of omission. You left out some of the details and therefore you had committed the lie. Or you allowed somebody to believe something that you knew was wrong by deciding that you would just remain silent. So I think that we need to have that kind of discourse going on. The last thing is one of my protections about being able to tell the truth is that I should be able to speak without being unduly suppressed by those who don't want to hear what I have to say. And that's the freedom of speech. In discourse at the moment, there are lots of things that are said that I think have helped to create the toxic social situation that we have at the moment. And that is that you can say things about people that are totally untrue and there is no consequence. I should be able to do something to rectify the matter if you tell lies about me. And if you do that with the deliberate intention of doing me harm, don't see it as being any different than you stealing my property, if you were stealing my reputation. Uh, and we should treat it in the same way. I should have some recourse to be able to go after you. Lots of pejoratives today are used. If I took the word racist and went back and looked at What does it actually mean? It means that I have views about people because of their ethnicity that aren't justified by fact, just by their ethnicity. It doesn't actually happen to be just between black and white. It can be religious, it can be physical, or it can be ethnic origins. Now, to describe somebody as being racist, there should be some substance to it. There's evidence that the person has actually acted in a way that shows that they're prejudiced against Asian people or they're prejudiced against people because of their religion, Jewish people or Islamic people or whatever it might be. But just because I say it shouldn't make it so. And unfortunately, I think we've got to a point where we are now guilty by accusation. And that is really, really bad.
0: Mr. McTeague, we look forward to continuing this important conversation that you rightfully brought forward the cancel culture, and the death of truth that we are experiencing in our society, as well as the importance of good governance and fiscal responsibility. We are joined by the Honorable Maurice McTeague, a former cabinet member of New Zealand's reform government and advisor to U.S. legislators and state governors across the country. The Honorable Maurice McTeague is vice president for outreach at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University in the Greater Washington, D.C. metro area. Mr. McTeague also serves on the Executive Advisory Board of the International Leaders Summit. Indeed, Mr. McTeague, we thank you so much for joining us on America's Roundtable this weekend.
1: Thank you, Mr. McTeague.
2: Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you once again.
1: Following up on our conversation with Maurice McTeague, let us briefly share with you two relevant current issues for which we should require accountability from our legislators immediately. The tools which are being used in the federal government's encroachment on states' rights with complete disregard for the consent of the governed are Omnibus Bill and Unaccountable Federal Agency. In an omnibus $1.9 trillion so-called COVID relief bill, 350 billion dollars are designated for states and localities. However, there is a caveat. The states receiving this federal aid may not reduce any taxes during the covered period, which is until 2024. This is another attempt by one party's mindset which has a disdain for competition and to produce equality of bad outcomes. Economies of the states that reduce taxes fare better than those that keep taxes high. And the COVID relief bill, for which we are all paying for as taxpayers, whether we want it or not, cannot exclude us. A Democrat-run Congress wants to pass climate legislation and still remain popular with their constituents and powerful special interests. As we heard from Maurice McTeague, the best way to do so is to have a regulatory agency come up with the regulation without having it to go through the Congress. In its piece, Biden's Backdoor Climate Plan, Wall Street Journal's editorial board described how Democrats will use the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, to impose the New Green Deal on states. The U.S. Congress is breaking its own rules again by deceitfully bundling different subjects in the same omnibus bill and by abdicating their lawmaking responsibility to avoid transparency and accountability. We should require from our legislators to have to vote for any regulation that is coming from any regulatory agency before it can be implemented. That is their primary role and that is why they are sitting in Congress. Otherwise, we can vote for other lawmakers who will uphold their own rules in Congress. As taxpayers who are used as a piggy bank for any money that is being spent for anything by the federal government, we need to make sure that we give our consent.
0: This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I am and Sami, your co-host joined by Natasha Sardoch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit.
1: America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit. Visit iLeadersSummit.org.